0: Good morning, everybody. It's a joy for me to be here and share the Word of God with you. And as we begin, um, let's start with a prayer. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your Word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility, May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue on with our study of the first book of Samuel. And so let us turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 41 to 54. And in your pew Bibles, I believe it is found on page 225, 1 Samuel chapter 17, we'll be reading from verses 41 to 54. And when you have found it, please rise from your seats in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines to this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth and all the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. My friends, this is the infallible, inerrant Word of the Lord. This is the story of David and Goliath. And David and Goliath is among, probably, one of the most well known stories of the Bible. If you grew up in Sunday school, Then you may have heard the story of David and Goliath multiple times. This is a story about a young boy named David fighting against the giant Goliath. Goliath is the enemy to beat. And no one is up to the task until a scrawny David comes along and accepts Goliath's challenge. He puts a stone in a sling, hits, and defeats Goliath. David... Is a hero but what if I asked you because the story is so familiar what if I asked you what the point of the passage was what's the point of this passage how would you answer it what's this text's main theme and that I believe is the main and most critical question what is the point of Of this passage, where are the accents and points that are meant to stand out? What is the biblical narrative we must understand? Because if we don't understand what the main point of the text is, we are liable to understand this story as a story to maybe that we need to face our Goliaths something that even non-Christians can seem to appreciate, something to the effect of, well, we may have Goliaths in life, but when we stand up to face them, we can overcome them, Woo! something like that. Whether it's your bully at school or a bully in the workplace, whether it's your poor self-image or your poor self-bank account, You've got to face your Goliaths. You just need to gather your stones because God is about to do something amazing in your life. But you see, by reading yourself into every hero of the Bible, what happens is we become deaf to the text. We miss the accents, the true highlights that the scripture is imposing. I've heard a great sermon where the preacher would respond to such interpretations, like I've said before, by telling people that you are not David, you are the guy cowering in the back. And I thought that was great. But the question still remains, what is the point of the passage One help we find in understanding this text is a word that is repeated in the chapter six times, and it's the word to defy or mock. It means to treat with contempt. It first appears in verse 10, where Goliath says in verse 10, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And it appears last in the passage when we read earlier in verse 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. What we find then is that Goliath, in all his boasting and all his taunts, What he was really doing was defying and treating with contempt not only Israel and its soldiers, but all the ranks of Israel. And that means all the ranks, including all the way up to Israel's God, Yahweh. That is something we must keep in mind as we continue to go over this chapter. And so I have four points for us today, and those four are First things first, the shift, the obstacles, and the victory. First things first, the shift, the obstacles, and the victory. First things first. An introduction is in order. So who is Goliath? And I think it's very important for us to know who Goliath is because the Bible spends an extraordinary lengthy amount of time describing him. This description of Goliath is lengthier than any other description of anyone else in the entire Bible. It may be the lengthiest, most detailed description of anyone found in Scripture at one point in the passage. And it's of this Philistine, this giant named Goliath, Goliath of Gath. Goliath is called a champion, and that expression, this word champion, is found nowhere else in the Old Testament except here in this chapter, and it literally means this. The champion literally means someone who stands in the gap. He is a representative. And the thing that stands out of this champion is that his height is six cubits and a span. A cubit is one and a half feet And so that would make him nine feet, six inches tall. This is truly a giant. There are other giants that are mentioned in the Old Testament, like the Egyptian in 1 Chronicle 11, who was five cubits tall. That's 7.5 feet tall. But also in Deuteronomy 3.11, where we have Ag, king of Bashan, whose height isn't specified, but his sarcophagus was 13.5 feet long and 6 feet wide. It was a huge tomb for him. In modern days, we have a record of the tallest man whose name was Robert Pershing Wadlow, who was 8 feet and 11 inches tall. And so Goliath was a few inches taller than Wadlow, which made Goliath a giant of a man. Not only that, we have a description of Goliath's armor. And I'm going through this because the scriptures go through this in detail. His armor and weaponry are described at length. His coat of mail wasn't your typical breastplate armor. It was made of several hundred bronze plates put together. It was like a chain mail minus the chain mail because instead of the chain, they put several hundred bronze plates together. See, chainmail armor was made for freedom of movement. If you needed to be quick and maneuver in the battlefield, you couldn't have just one thick breastplate on. You would need this kind of armor, this coat of mail. But not only was this coat of mail something that you could maneuver in, we're told the weight of this coat of mail. And this coat of mail weighed 126 pounds. What that means is Goliath was able to remain dexterous while donning male armor that weighed 126 pounds. I really do think that when we look at this passage, we are meant to look at Goliath and be wowed by his prowess, by his power. The rest of Goliath's armor, from his helmet to his greaves, are made of bronze, meaning he was well protected from head to toe. And as far as weaponry goes, there is one weapon that is highlighted, and it seems to be his weapon of choice, his javelin. Because we know at least he had a sword, and it had a spearhead weighing over 25 pounds, and the shaft, it says, was like a weaver's beam. What does that mean? That means on his spear or javelin, there was a leash attached to it, a cord. So you can sling it around. And what happens when you sling around a javelin, it spins and it can go a greater distance with greater accuracy and greater deadliness. It could bore through people from the resulting spin from the cord. And then you could retract it back and use it again. That means he was skilled enough to use this with incredible, deadly force. He also had a shield-bearer that would go in front of him, which afforded him maximum protection. While you could imagine and see anybody that go into the vicinity of Goliath's um, circumference, he would just demolish. And just looking at these first details, Goliath, the Philistine giant, must have seemed invincible. After Goliath's lengthy introduction, we are also introduced afterwards to a second character from verses 12 to 23. But David's introduction is slightly different, in fact very different, from Goliath's the focus on the descriptives between Goliath and David vary greatly. Because after Goliath is introduced, we hear the words of defiance against the ranks of Israel and Saul, and then both Saul and Israel being dismayed and greatly afraid. Then enters David in verse 12. Now David, it says in verse 12, with the son of of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. David is introduced to contrast Goliath's descriptive. First, there was Goliath, this colossal man with his colossal words instilling colossal fear. There is nothing small about Goliath. Enter David, the youngest of eight sons from a man who lives in a small town called Bethlehem, and his daily task was to feed his father's sheep, a duty that you would think is hardly worth mentioning if you're going to introduce another character to the fight. He's given the chore of taking some items or food for his eldest three brothers who are in the army, who are in the front lines with Saul against the Philistines and some cheeses for their commander. He has to go and deliver these items to make sure they're okay, to receive a token back so they could give it to his father. This this is David, the last of Jesse's sons, from a small town with a menial task. But something happens in David's journey. Something happens while he is on this small task. Goliath comes out again to taunt and defy the ranks of Israel. And in verse 23, it says, And David heard him. The second point is the shift. And that's just in verse 26. With everything going on, we see the fear of the Israelites, the superiority of the Philistines and their champion and a young David who was sent on a chore. Then verse 26 happens. Verse 26 is important because it's the first time David speaks in the Bible. Up to this point, we may have heard about David, but we never hear David say anything. And so here are his first words in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What's so significant about these words? For the first time in this chapter, we see in this narrative someone actually mention God. David is the first person to shift the worldview to a theological one. Up to this point, no one had mentioned God. No one had called out to him, and it seems that no one gave him a thought. And so while David may be the least in a small family, in a small town, with a small task, what he says is, Is no small thing. David's silence is finally broken in this book, and with it he brings an entirely different worldview. Goliath looked invincible, the Israelites sure believed it, but he, by interjecting his speech, is asking, but shouldn't the living God, make a difference in how we see this situation. Israel saw Goliath as undefeatable. David just saw him as uncircumcised. He says something similar to Jonathan in the earlier chapters that we have gone over when he defeated the Philistines and also brought an unimaginable victory for Israel. So what are we to learn from this? Well, it's about world view. How do we see any situation and the world at large? We are to look at it from a theocentric point of view. In fact, all of life for a believer should be theocentric. That means God is in the center. What is the difference between David and everyone else in this narrative Goliath and the Philistines focused on their own might. Israel also focused on their own might or lack thereof. Everyone was self-focused is the point. However, David was God-focused. While the whole world is me-focused, the Christian has a whole new and different view of things because he knows that there is a living God. Here's the third point, the obstacles. The obstacles from verses 28 to 40. David had an older brother, Eliab, and we're not to miss this part. We're not just to jump to the part where he fights Goliath. David had an older brother, Eliab, and he happened to hear what David was saying. And he got really angry with David. Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. He belittles David, going as far as to treat David with contempt about the few sheep that he should go back to. Go back to your three or four sheep, little boy. And he reprimands David for acting in such a way that really annoyed Eliab. David then gives the very typical younger brother response. What did I do now? Can't I even say anything? That really is a typical younger brother response. Older siblings have always this like mental edge over their younger siblings. Eliab clearly has a mental edge over David. As one commentator would put it, Eliab is Goliath. He is Goliath before Goliath. Goliath will express contempt for David, but Eliab has already expressed it. To even get to Goliath, David must first pass this obstacle. In fact, David has another obstacle even after this that we'll see in a little bit. But instead of being deterred because of his older brother, who clearly has this mental advantage over him, we see that David continues on in speaking the same way. He's continually interjecting that worldview, the different worldview than everyone else is going as far as to plant in people's mind the possibility of defeating Goliath by asking what's the reward David makes enough ruckus to finally reach the ears of King Saul who then sends for him David upon meeting Saul says that he will fight Goliath and Saul responds by t- David telling David but you're just a boy you're just a boy it's similar to Eliab's contemptuous words to David But here, David responds to King Saul. He tells the king that he is able to defeat this Philistine because, and wait for it, because he's a shepherd, not a warrior, not someone that is known for this great potential, like he's been training under this great general, perhaps. But as David explains, As a shepherd, he lives in constant danger and threat to his life and the life of his flock. It wasn't unusual for a lion or bear to make off with one of the sheep. And when they did, he would chase that lion or bear, strike it down, and save that sheep. And if by chance the lion or bear would turn against David... He would grab it, and it says by its beard. That means he would grab it by its fur, strike it, and beat it to death. When he is explaining this, the word strike is used three times in those two verses that David is explaining what shepherding entails. And that word strike literally means to beat to death. And he finishes by saying he will do the same to Goliath. But here's the accent Here's the accent that we are not to miss. It's in verse 37. He tells Saul how he is able to do this. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This is consistent with his worldview, from his words, from before. He doesn't ascribe his success to his ability to kill lions and bears because of his own skills. He doesn't say, Yup, I'm that awesome. Or he doesn't attribute it to luck. I'm just a guy who just happened to be at the right place at the right time. He doesn't do any of that. He accounts for his victories by saying that it was God who did the delivering. God delivered me from the lion and bear, and God will deliver me from this Philistine. And this is the essence of David's faith. David knows who God is. He doesn't use God by treating him like a genie. He doesn't think he merits God's favor because David happens to be such a good guy. David knows the character of God, and he trusts in God. He knows that God is the protector of his people. He knows that God is the true deliverer. And so here's the second test or obstacle that we're not to miss. Saul hears what David says and he believes him. And so Saul, what what happens after Saul goes, yeah, the Lord be with you, I believe you. What does Saul do? Saul puts his armor on David. Why would Saul do this? Is it really because Saul all of a sudden cares about David's well-being? Possibly, but I think probably not. In the ancient East, there was a practice that if you would don the clothing or armor of someone greater, like a king, what it would show people is that that warrior would have the essence of or the of the armor weapon that he donned. And in this case, it would be Saul. So if David wore Saul's armor strapped on his sword and defeated Goliath, Saul could say it was because Saul lent him his strength, his spirit to do that. And if David lost there would be no loss for Saul because Saul could have easily just responded or reasoned to people that even his strength was no match for this giant Goliath and he was not worthy of the king's strength or something to that effect. So David's temptation, on the other hand, would have then been, should he carry the glory of this king? After all, Wasn't David the next in line? Anyway, imagine you're walking down to meet Goliath and you're walking down donning the armor of the king. Imagine the oohs and ahs. Imagine Eliab's face that you could rub it in when you strut past him with the king's armor. Now, I don't know, because the Bible doesn't say, I don't know if David realized any of this or it was because of his innocence he didn't even bother to notice that. Either way, David just simply says to Saul, I can't use these because I have not tested them. I can't use these because I've never fought with these things before. And I love, I absolutely love the innocence of David. It reminds us that sin robs us of our innocence. And then everything becomes convoluted and complicated thereafter. There is an ulterior motive to the ulterior motive because the self is at the center of everything that you do. However, the pure in heart are blessed. Jesus says so in Matthew 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Here's the next point, the victory. And this is the last point. Finally, we come to the passage that we've read this morning. This is the actual fight, the final obstacle, the final boss. We see a clash, not of titans, but of world views. From verses 41 to 44 that we read, Goliath dominates this narrative. 5 times we see the subject the Philistine. It is self-centered, God not god-centered, Goliath-centered. It's almost as if the narrator is letting Goliath dominate this narrative for the 4 verses. Everything is about himself and going from the beginning of this passage, he indeed was a frightful figure. It's about him, the Philistine. And now, to the contrast, look at David's speech. Who's at the center of David's speech? Is it David? Is it Goliath? No, it is Yahweh, the living God. You know, we live in a world that defies God and all that is holy. People hate his law. They hate his word, and they reject this offer of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And so how should we respond? Do we respond when we see things like that in the world by putting them then in the center as well? Do we respond to people in the world by also putting them in the center? Do we use terms like empathy or tolerance and believe it is the Christianly thing to do when we address sinners and their sin. So when Goliath puts Goliath at the center, should we also respond by putting him at the center? Or do we also, do we respond by putting ourselves at the center? Oh, let me tell you about my testimony. Let me talk to you about me because, boy, do I have a story to tell you. Let's look at David's response once again. From verse 45, it says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Into our hand. What is priority? What is first in order? Who did David make center of his worldview? It was God. Now, after saying this, I am not saying that we ought not to empathize or we ought not to share our testimony. What I am saying is, it is not the first order of things. When we make what we call, quote, empathy, unquote, first, what we, what we really are doing is we are really elevating the person above God. You know, I've been on missions where people would say, we shouldn't talk about sin because of this reason, of that reason. They don't really understand what sin is. They won't appreciate if we say sin or the word sin. We should just talk about God and His love. And guess what? No disciples are formed because no truth was given. We think that we are being kind when we don't address the sin along with the sinner, but what we really are doing is elevating the self above God's clear and righteous decrees. And it doesn't mean also that we ought not to share our testimony, but our testimony is not a substitute for the gospel message that we have been entrusted to proclaim. As disciples commissioned by Christ, we must make and go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything Jesus Christ has commanded us to. What that means, what that means is that what God says comes first. Scripture comes first. The reformers knew this. And this is why the first sola of the five solas in the Reformation is sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola scriptura means that scripture alone is authoritative for faith and practice for the Christian. The Bible is complete, authoritative, and true. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. What you have read and heard this morning is from the lips of the Lord. It is His wisdom and it is His truth that comes to us with the full measure of his authority. So what is David really doing here? He is stressing the power and might of God. Goliath boasts in his own strength. David's boast is in Yahweh. Goliath comes at David with superior tech and weaponry, but David goes against Goliath in the name of the Lord of hosts while Goliath's narrative was covered with his own superiority and strength, we see how small and weak David was seen as. But in what looks to be weakness in the world's view, God uses as an opportunity to show his might. In fact, we see in this story the truth of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 12. David may not have had in the world's view, the wealth that was necessary, the pedigree that was necessary, the weaponry or technology that was necessary, but what David had was the power of God rested on him. In Second Corinthians 12, verse 9, it says, "'But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness.'" Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so what David had mattered more than the best weapon, strength, or even skill. What David had was the real God. And so the focus of this chapter is not, the focus of this chapter is not on David's courage or bravery, but rather the sufficiency of God in David's weakness. And yes, the driving concern for David was the honor of God, he is driven by the passion for God, his honor and giving God glory. That's what made David shine most brightly because it was about his reputation. It was about his glory that consumed David. But now if we put all this together, in the beginning we saw that derision, that mocking, that defying of God. That was in the center of the narrative until a man came forth and saw that God's reputation was at stake, and that mattered to him. And he was able, and he was willing to risk his life for it. And it was God who sustained him. It was God who empowered him. It was God who was sufficient for him. David puts a stone in his sling, And a sling properly swung can throw a stone at speeds up to 150 miles per hour. This stone lands square right in the middle of Goliath's forehead. It sinks into his skull, and he falls face forward. David takes Goliath's sword, because he didn't have one of his own, and kills Goliath with it and cuts off his head. David's victory is absolute. The armies of Israel follow suit and defeat and plunder the Philistines. What looked to be a pitiful, pitiful defeat for Israel, God turns it into an utter triumph. You know, looking back at this chapter, I think there are many things that we can learn by studying this chapter over and over again. But the glaring question still stares back at us. When I come upon the various, various scenarios of life, what matters more, my honor or the reputation of the name of God? Even if you were to face ridicule, consternation, agitation, Persecution, even if you were to face all of that, in whom do you trust? And finally, the biggest question that should face us after reading this chapter is Do you know God? It's God who saw us helpless and weak, utterly defeated by our sin. But it is God who loved us enough to give us his only son to die for us. Through his death and his subsequent resurrection, those that believe and trust in Jesus Christ are given a new birth into a living hope, a guaranteed home in heaven and life with Christ, for all eternity. See, the gospel is good news because while we did nothing to merit his kindness, those that receive the gospel by faith receive the salvation that Christ offers all those that will follow after him. And that's when by the grace of God your life takes a shift because the ultimate obstacle of death has been defeated. And we can finally have a life where things are in order, where first things are first, where we live in complete victory for all eternity. I want to end by asking you to turn to Psalm 24 with me, and I'm just going to read Psalm 24. And after we have gone over all these things in the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel, let's read Psalm 24. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Selah. Amen. The Lord God, the Lord on high, is mighty. This is what we see in the Word of God. And He calls upon those that can hear His Word to place their trust in Him. For He is our salvation. Let us pray.